You're listening to the Story Centric Podcast. Welcome to episode six of the Story Centric Podcast with me, your host, Andrew Buckley. I am so happy you are back here again to catch the second half of the conversation with Canadian actor Omari Newton. On this part of the episode, we hear him talk about how he goes about building the voice for different characters when he does voice acting and a few other awesome things. So I hope you enjoy this second part. But before we do that, here is a quick word from our sponsor. It's time to get your story straight. This podcast episode is sponsored by Wordsmith Academy, a dynamic online writing school featuring self-paced classes and story coaching services. Our online writing courses cover a wide range of topics from story structure and character development to author tools and book marketing. Whether you just have a great story idea or are a seasoned professional or simply looking to navigate the writing world, Wordsmith Academy has something for everyone. Sign up for a course today at wordsmithacademy.com. And on with the show, reintroducing Mr. Omari Newton. In England, it was hard to even find a bloody comic book. Like, I remember getting yeah. Spider-Man, but I had to go to a specific newsstand, like, miles away in order to pick one up every every month, and I did it quietly. I'm not really telling anybody about it. Yeah. Because it wasn't, it definitely wasn't an acceptable thing, for sure. Yeah, now it's a breeze. Jeez, it's. I just remember that there was um there was a comic book shop. I can't remember what it was called. It called Captain Quebec or something. But it was there was a comic book shop near my place. My dad used to take me to, and I remember it was just like being in Valhalla. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, was just, I was just like, oh my god, like just my mind would be blown. And I remember back then, you know, I I would be able to choose like two, right? Every so I I got really into. Uncanny X-Men and uh, Todd McFarlane's run of Spider-Man. I have right. like somewhere in a box in a basement, I have like probably worth something issues of original Spider-Man. That's crazy. <laughs> probably worth a lot of money by now. Maybe. Although I'm sure I didn't treat them well because I was like 12. Yeah, the same thing. I had all like the Maximum Carnage storyline back when I was a kid. And that's where I first discovered wow. Spider-Man. And that was like my thing. And I don't know whatever happened to those things. I think probably left them in England, really. But I probably beat the <laughs> shit out of them, too. All right. So Marvel. I mean, you've been voicing Black Panther for Marvel since 2014, I think was the earliest uh, credit I found. Yeah. Um, Marvel is like the highly coveted thing these days, no matter like what level of Marvel you're playing in. Um, how did that opportunity come about and um, how did it come to you? Uh, it was pretty surreal. I I think the first time I voiced Black Panther was 2012. Uh, and this is before the movie came out. This is before Chadwick Boseman was, was cast. And I just remember my agent sending me an audition for was MKN or Marvel Knights was doing a motion comic book. And it was Wolverine versus Sabretooth. It was the first time I voiced a role. And I, growing up a nerd, Black Panther was everything to me. Like, there, there was not many Black superheroes. So Black Panther was like the man. So I remember being so stoked when my agent sent the audition and working so hard in it and just like crushing it. And I remember when I booked it, I cried. Because I, it, was, it was like a full circle, you know, even to this day. Every time I get an email from Marvel, right, or, or you know, from my agent through Marvel, it's just very surreal, you know? Yeah, I mean, to play in that sandbox, like like I said, at any level, like Marvel is such a 
big, massive, sprawling machine that has all this cultural impact. To be any part of that, like, must be pretty damn magical. It's pretty surreal, man. It's it's <laughs> surreal to me that you know. Although you know, for anyone listening who's an aspiring actor or voice actor, or whatever, the thing that I realize is this: I know for a fact because he said so much to me. Because it's been now almost a decade that I've voiced Black Panther on various projects. There's just one guy who works at Marvel who likes my Black Panther. And that's the thing that you realize, right? Is that like, if you really love a character and you really want to play a character and you, you study and you understand it and you know that whatever, if you put all that love and investment and energy into the character, all you need is like one person on the production team to, to feel that and be like, yes, this guy gets it. And you might get to voice that character. Thanks. Wild though. I mean, and so wait, hang on. So 2012 was the first time you did it. So this is before like the the big screen Black Panther. So you were the you were doing the his voice before we ever saw Chadwick Boseman do the voice. I was, yeah. And it's funny now because a lot of people, you know, there's um there's a website, a very popular website called Behind the Voice Actors, mm-hmm. and they'll they'll post a character and they'll list everybody who played the character. And they'll like rank and they'll compare, right? And everybody now, like Chadwick is the gold standard. And I agree, he's an incredible Black Panther, right? But they'll make comments like, yeah, he doesn't really sound like Chadwick. He doesn't really, and I, you know, obviously I would never do this, but I'm always in the comments and we're like, actually, I did it five years before. We did. <laughs> I did it first. Chadwick based up mine. That's what yeah, happened well, here. <laughs> I would never say this. And I'm sure he did not, right? I'm but, sure he did. <laughs> but it's funny, like, you know, yeah, I see people writing that because they don't know. They all, a lot of people, the first time the character came to their consciousness through the movies. You know? Yeah. So, but with that in mind, then, I mean, you were given this opportunity to voice this character who you absolutely love. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you even come up with the voice for that character? Because it hasn't really been heard that much before then, right? I mean, I guess it was yeah. like Avengers Unlimited back in the day. So how do I come up with a voice for Black Panther? So luckily, Wakanda is not a real place, which is very fortunate because... I'm actually not great at impressions, um, and I can do some accents if I have an ear for them, but I'd have to listen to them a lot. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had one of the first roles I was cast in, as I mentioned, was My Children, My Africa, um, and I had to do an, an African accent. It was an attempt at a South African accent, but I don't think it was a great South African accent, but it, was a, it ended up sounding sort of like a hybrid of a South African and West African accent. So like I, I knew that I wanted to place Black Panther somewhere in like West Africa, and I think I might have mentioned you last time I spoke to you that the way that I approach characters is I look at the different resonators that are in your body. So there's your nose and your head. Like this one. This one I'm here, right? There's your throat. So like here, if you speak from your throat, that's here. There's your chest. So if you talk from here, that's your chest. And there's your guts. So really, really deep down here, right? So, and I, I know that my natural voice lives kind of in my nose. Oh, hello, dog. Sorry. <laughs> it's all happening right now, Andrew. <laughs> I know. It's great. Yeah. I know, I know my natural voice lives somewhere in my nose and my throat, um, but I knew that this doesn't sound like a hero. This doesn't sound like Black Panther. So the first thing I wanted to do is make sure that when I spoke, I spoke from like more in my chest so it was more supported. So you move your voice down here, and then if you look at speaking from here and you add to it an accent, all of a sudden, you sound like T'Challa, king of Wakanda. You talk like this, but all it is is looking at which resonator you talk from and moving it down. But that's that's literally what it is. Like, what resonator and then what rhythm or accent and dialogue. Makes me so giddily happy from a nerd standpoint to hear you do the voice. <laughs> I wish I did it, but man, I can't help myself. I uh, it's, it. 
yeah, it's really cool. I mean, the talent to be able to do that. And I'd never heard of you before we filmed that segment for Nerds on the Run. I'd never heard of that concept. And we, we actually all talked about it after the filming, like that of the resonance between the four different areas. Never even, never even occurred to me that that's how voice acting, you know, really um, could be structurally put together that way. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's interesting, one of the benefits of not being a trained actor is I had to learn on the go. And I remember like when I was a kid listening to voices and trying to like, I thought it was magic, right? I would see voice actors, like you'd see like Mel Blanc and you go, this guy's a magician. How does he do it? And I remember just listening and kind of trying to break down like, okay, well, like this character is higher up. How is he getting that higher uh, sound? And then Mm -hmm. messing around and trying it, right? And then in theater school, uh, not theater school, but in theater classes, learning vocal warmups that made you go through your resonators and then it clicking and being like, oh, like this character is a misresonator. Like, like that high pitched nasal thing, that's the, the nose resonator. And then starting thinking about all the characters I knew who lived in that resonator. Yeah. Man, it's such a weird, it's, it's a really interesting way to look at it that it never even, it wouldn't even have occurred to me that that's how it all kind of can play out. But man, it is an impressive uh, feat. So the well, whole voice act, sorry, go on. Well, I was going to offer you something that's that now that you know this, that's fascinating. If you look at people like um, Seth MacFarlane or Hank Azaria or these like master voice actors, mm-hmm. you can totally hear it, right? Like if you like, like I, I can't do a Peter Griffin, but Peter Griffin has kind of a higher voice. Like he, that, he's definitely going through his nose and it's yeah. kind of like a rounder sound, right? And oh, oh, like Stewie talks like this, right? It's more like high. Like he has this thing where it's like nose and throat, but you can literally like math place where he's putting the voices and the more variance you have between your voice the more characters you can play and that's what all these guys are doing they're just and if you do like multiple accents and you've mastered your resonators you have an endless array of characters that you can play yeah we just give you this amazing cast to draw from all the time to do the voice work man that's wild Mm -hmm. what a cool industry Mm -hmm. okay so to put it into the the black panther piece i mean is will do you get to play him like every time or is it how does that I'll play out it's all unknown basically no it's just it, when they call i always say yes um who knows it, i i could be recast now for all i know it's it's a weird thing like i i remember um uh matthew lillard amazing actor mm-hmm. did the voice of shaggy and scooby-doo forever like yeah. 15 years then they did a reboot some producer went let's go a different direction you know, the guy's a phenomenal Shaggy. Like there's nobody could like he's he's the voice of Shaggy that most 90s kids up until now know. He totally. did nothing wrong. He did. But all it takes is some producer who goes, eh, we're going to try something else. And then you're out of a job. It's pretty sad. I mean, but to, I know that they recast Shaggy and the new Shaggy voices doesn't sound doesn't sound like Shaggy anymore. I can't imagine them doing that with T'Challa. I mean, this would be weird to go with a totally different direction with that particular character, I think. Yeah, it would be. But. At the same time, because the character is so big now and so iconic mm. post Chadwick, I'm sure they could get almost anyone in Hollywood to do that voice. Like I got lucky in that I, when I did it, it was he was famous to comic book fans, but he wasn't as globally famous as he is now. Yeah. So I'm sure at one point they'll just get like I don't know, like Jonathan Majors or Michael B. Jordan or somebody to to do it, right? Yeah, I guess there's always that possibility. I hope not, but I guess that it does exist. Because they just announced the video game, like the big Black Panther video game comes out from EA in a couple and years. And I'm I'm not doing it in that one. Because there's, there's here's the other thing. There's a guy in the States who does it when they film in the States. And in Canada, I tend to do it when it's done in Canada. Oh, I see. Okay, so it's dependent on uh, the uh, 
Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, um, let's shift on because there's another piece that I want to touch upon before I, I let you go. Um, you've written a performance play uh, called Sal Capone, The Lamentable Tragedy of. Yeah. It was inspired by the shooting of uh, Freddy, whose second name I'm going to butcher, Vienna. Yeah, Vienna Blue. Once why do you create that show? Like, uh, what message were you hoping to kind of deliver to audience? I haven't had a chance to see it or even read up too much on, on it past my initial research, but I'm kind yeah. of super curious about it. Yeah, so that was the first professional thing that I wrote, or the first the first thing that I'd written that got produced professionally. And I was doing background work, and here's a little fun fact, on the Mark Wahlberg movie Shooter. And anybody who watches, who's seen the Mark Wahlberg movie Shooter, in the opening sequence, it takes place in Africa, and there's a bunch of African militia members. I am one of them. I'll be the one who's standing next to a camel. I play a shepherd holding a camel in a field. Very, very random, right? Okay. Uh, it was filmed in Clinton, British Columbia. And I remember I was in my hotel room in Clinton, British Columbia, and that's a whole other story because they, they had to bus like 80 black people to Clinton, British Columbia to make it look like Africa because there's no black people in Clinton. Oh, British I was going to say, no black people in Clinton, British Columbia? No Shocked. black people whatsoever. And did I, did I mention this last time we spoke? Did I tell you about this? No, you never mentioned this story. This is a great story. So they needed black people to make it look like Africa, and we were playing militia members, and the opening scene was a full-on war scene right, where Mark Wahlberg is, like, getting ambushed and stuff. So they literally had, like, 80 of us on a yellow school bus in Clinton, B.C., and we pulled up, one of the first things we did, we pulled up to a field, and they gave us guns with blanks, and we started firing weapons, and all the locals, all the locals were driving by, it's like 80 black dudes with Kalashnikovs shooting off rounds, and they were just like, what? is happening and in this town in clinton this is true it's gonna sound like a joke but in clinton bc their restaurant was also their hotel and was also their drugstore and was also their liquor store it was one of those towns you know anyhow i was in my hotel slash the restaurant slash the liquor store in clinton bc and this news story came on the screen about freddie villanueva who was a young um bipoc man it wasn't a black man but he was a young uh, latinx guy who grew up in uh, the north end of Montreal, so close-ish to, to where I, I was born, and he was shot and killed by police. And at the time, you know, my career wasn't going all that great. I was doing background work on this movie, and I was doing a little bit of theater, but I wasn't getting, you know, making a lot of money doing it. And I remember thinking, like, this is the kind of story that I would want to see on screen. Like, and I remember thinking, like, I was so incensed by hearing about it. I'm like, I want to tell this story. And that's what inspired me to write this play. It was a, a hip-hop theater piece called Lamentable Tragedy of Sal Capone that dealt with this hip-hop group called Sal Capone and their DJ gets shot and killed by police. And the play, well, you don't know he's dead actually when the play starts. He gets shot by police. And the play is about the aftermath, his friends in the group coping with his shooting. And uh, yeah, before the end of the play, he passes away, which triggers his friends to cause a riot. So, I mean, it's a great example of using story to you know and make people kind of what we talked about way earlier on when we talked about the you know coming to being a container for you know education inspiration this is just a different way to do that but like what were you hoping to kind of i guess pass on to audiences with this because it wasn't like you're going this wasn't satire this wasn't comedy this was something that was a lot more serious although it is a very funny play as well i will humbly submit really okay yeah yeah there's a lot because i just don't i don't i think everything's funny because you can't write serious, right? Is that what it's coming down to? Because yeah. I have a trouble with this too. I'm going to quote, and I know he's been canceled, 
but he's a brilliant um, writer and comedian. But Louis C.K. Louis C.K.'s show before he was canceled and the show was canceled was a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And it was a comedy, but it dealt with like some really dark and messed up stuff. And I remember Louis C.K. saying he can't stand network sitcoms because they exist in this world where it's just everybody's like, I'm the smarmy guy and everything I say is smarmy and or dramas where it's like everything is serious all the time. And I've never been in any social situation where everybody's serious or everybody's joking. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a balance. Always balance. Yeah. Like you, mm-hmm. and, and you work with people who have like serious jobs. Like cops have some of the most wild senses of humor or, or you know, almost the, the darker or the harder the job, the, the more comedy people use to cope, you know? Funeral directors. I've, said, I've met some hilarious funeral directors, and I, I assume it's got to be, you have to have that kind of, you know, mentality if you're going to be doing that particular job. Sure. I mean, imagine being reminded of your mortality every day. Every single day. And not only that, they must see some of the funniest deaths. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's Not everybody dies a hero's death, right? Like, not everybody, I'm sure they're like, you know, this guy was taking a dump and he slipped and bumped his head and uh, i don't know awful the stories they must get and yeah uh yeah no you're right that's true good point uh mm. that that is uh, where do we start with this <laughs> um, uh, we're talking about sal capone and what like oh yeah i, I said that oh, serious play but i said there's some comedic elements parts, yeah i just think that everything every, life is absurd right like our our the fact that we're here is absurd the fact that i don't know i could get dark or whatever but no, go. Give it go go dark. Let's see how this goes. Well, it's all sort of absurd. We're on borrowed time. We know this. Mm-hmm. We we know that we're we're you know, we are actively participating in the destruction of our planet, which we all need because we live here, and nobody's really taking it that seriously. We're all sort of just, you know, playing along. Well, come on. I mean, we did introduce, you know, paper straws. I think that's a big step <laughs> forward and in- Trying to save the environment, Mary. How dare you downplay our efforts? <laughs> You're right. I take it back. I take it back. This is very serious. And we also don't give out plastic bags anymore. So that'll that'll that be worse. Um, I mean, I this annoys some of my friends, but like even the pageantry of like recycling at home, mm-hmm. we, we know for a fact that the, the overwhelming majority of the world's um, pollution comes from corporations. We know this, and instead of like actually doing something like hard legislation. To incentivize these companies to stop doing that, we go, yeah, put your put your trash in the blue box, even though we know that like domestic pollution doesn't even account for a fraction of the problem. So I just think it's all funny that we're all just pretending constantly. Well, that makes me not want to recycle anymore. But yeah, yeah, you're you're right. I guess it just kind of goes down that particular road. <laughs> okay, so if everything is absurd, and that's kind of what you take a lot of your um, your angle. Or it's your starting angle for writing is kind of that absurdist kind of humor of viewpoint. I mean, uh, you you did Sal Capone. Uh, that was to to you know tell the specific message. Um, that inspired that basically brought about the creation of uh, Bold School Productions. Is that still yeah active? Okay, uh, it still exists as a company. As a company, my my friend and mentor Diane Roberts and I um, we make projects together. But we currently we're both so busy that we're on like a temporary hiatus. But it does still exist. Okay. Kind of what other projects do you want to do? Like, what what do you have that's like crazy? You know, well, what's what's realistic and what's even like crazy blue sky stuff that you have in your future or stories that you want to tell? Like, what you got in on the on the back burner? I definitely want to get into directing film. That was, um, okay, that was gonna be my next question, but yeah, sure, go ahead, jump ahead. Yeah, I definitely want to get into writing and directing film, but this is gonna sound weird, but I don't, I'm not particularly interested in doing it as 
as a commercial venture. And I don't mean that like I want my movies to be seen and I'll want them to make money, but I'm not interested in the the pipeline, the traditional pipeline required to make films. Like I'm not interested in making like MOWs so that one day they'll give me a shot at making the movie I want to make. I'd much rather right. go the indie route. If, even if I one day have to like bootstrap it myself or because I like the medium of film, but the business of film is pretty horrible. <laughs> yeah, I can I can vouch for that currently wading through it. It's uh yeah, it's not it's not super fun. The the independent it, it's it's the thing where you decide whether you shoot something for less with people who are not, you know, like crazy well known that you have to fly in from somewhere and you just do it and you have fun and you make the best project you can. And then you have to balance that with, okay, but if I do it that way, how many people are going to see it? How many people are going to watch it? It's it's a very, I mean, I worked in film back at the turn of the century and I left it because it was such a nightmare of business. And then I'm only, I've been kind of dragged back into it now, 20 years later. And I'm still like, huh, still the same. <laughs> Nothing's really changed. Yeah, man. And then of course you, you look at everything that's going on now with the strike, right? And just that too. The like unabashed greed of studios and studio executives and just like just reading about the, the I don't know if you heard the creator of Squid Game. Apparently Squid Game made nine hundred million dollars for Netflix and the creator doesn't own the IP and <laughs> didn't get any residuals. <laughs> I heard that. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. And you yeah. just go oh sorry, go on. No, I mean, talking about absurdist, I mean, that there's nothing more absurd than that. And I'm hoping that by the time this, you know, these episodes air, like the writer's strike will be over, but this has gone on for a while now. And I, I know it's, it's correct me if I'm wrong, because I've been trying to stay away from most of the news about it. Um, but the Director's Guild, like, struck a deal in the middle of it, basically, and kind of got what they wanted out of it, when really they could have carried the writers with them, but then they're like, well, as long as we can get a swing about a deal. Like, I, there's I that mean, kind of thing going on. I All don't right. know. I don't truly don't know the nuances of their deal or what they. I don't. I don't know enough about it. You know. Mm -hmm. I just know that it's obviously immoral to use someone's creation, make a shitload of money off it, and not let them participate in the profits. You know. Well, I mean, from a novel writing standpoint, we almost never get a chance to participate if our work gets you know turned into some kind of transitional media the sub rights get sold for film and television it's a rarity that the original author up there gets any kind of saying um, really yeah it doesn't happen very often there's a very very few cases of it occurring so if you write a novel mm -hmm. and paramount makes it into a movie you don't get more money uh we'll get it depends on the deal from the sub rights but i mean you can the problem is that novels get optioned all the time and the 90 percent of the time nothing gets done with it so basically authors are very used to being like, okay, yeah, you can option my work. And it means I get a, you know, a paycheck every year that you renew that option. But most of the time, that's where the deal stops. If you have a very forthright agent, you might say, okay, well, you get certain points if it actually goes to production or whatever else. Mm -hmm. uh, but chances are, you still don't get to say how your work is used when it gets turned into that media. That's something that we almost never have any power over. Which is crazy, right? I mean, it's your IP, it's your thing. But I mean, there's a few cases where it's worked out great. And Rice, you know, maintained like absolute stranglehold rights over her stuff. Yes. Um, uh, J.K. Rowling is like the, the big famous one that everybody always talks about that she got to, you know, say what she wanted to say. Okay. And then got in trouble for saying what she wanted to say later in life. But most authors, I mean, we're just happy to option the rights for the possibility that it will get. Um, turned into something because from our standpoint 
thanks to Amazon self-publishing, digital publishing, we get sweet of all anyways, realistically. Our royalty rates have just been diminished and diminished and diminished. So if somebody offers us option rights, we're like, yes, yes, absolutely. You pay me for that and thinking that nothing will ever happen. But if something does happen and then you don't get into control of it, it'd be kind of a bummer, but it'd probably help me sell more books. So I, mean, I guess I'm a two minds. I don't really care. Oh, that's so depressing. <laughs> it is a little bit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, just be, it's just wild. I know you know this because you're a writer. It's just wild to me to think like writing is everything. Mm-hmm. It's, there's, there's nothing without like, it's everything. And to think that the architects of this entire industry are cut out of the profits is so wrong. When you go before there's crew, before there's direct, like the script is everything. Yeah. You, you don't have anything. You don't have a starting point unless you have that. It simply doesn't exist. But forever, writers, I mean, in Hollywood, obviously, uh, just as much so as anywhere else. But I don't know. Authors, it's, just, it's always been the same token. We've always had the, mo- the smallest amount of power. And even right down to the nitty gritty, like cover art. Authors net really don't get much of a saying what goes on the cover of a book. You kind of trust the publisher to do it. Like you don't get right. to say that kind of stuff. Final edit usually lives with the publisher. Like we, we we're the right. lowest of the low, and we're the last to get paid. <laughs> so it's the it's it's the bad scenario. Now yeah. talking about it, it is really fucking depressing, America. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, <laughs> really man. killed this story based podcast that we have. Going yeah, I apologize. Although I feel like it's a real conversation, so I appreciate that. But it is a real conversation, and it is problematic, and it is horrible, and more people. Should should know about it so at that token on that point then we're 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 doing god's work here but um all right to cap this off so you can go and eat your eat your uh eat your dinner what is it the that you could share you could share any kind of lesson to the storytellers whether they be actors or writers or whatever else what is the one thing that you would one piece of uh inspiring wisdom that you could give to people i'm gonna give some simple practical advice work Put your energy and invest your time and energy primarily, your creative energy, that is, primarily into the thing that you actually want to be doing, right? Yes, money is an issue. You want to make money. We live in a capitalist society. It's inevitable. But let like something you, to be frank, not that I don't, I want to be careful I say this. It's not <laughs> that you, choose, you shouldn't choose a day job that you don't give a shit about. It's better if you have a, jo- a, a day job that aligns with what you care about, right? But you can compromise in the thing that you're doing to keep the lights on. But no matter what project you're going to be working on, whether it's a Hallmark movie or an indie film that makes it Sundance, it's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be long hours. And there's not often a ton of money, as we just discussed. So if you're going to be spending a lot of time and a lot of focus and a lot of energy on something, better it be something that you care about. Because at the end of the day, if it fails, at least you got to spend a bunch of time working on something you really care about instead of just some, you know, some MOW that might end up being bad anyway. And you don't get money on it. So that's that's the best advice I can give artists. Like, don't do this thing where you're like, I don't know, don't don't go around just chasing checks in the industry so that one day you can do the thing you want to do because you'll wake up one day and you'll realize that this is now your career, is that you're just kind of doing gigs for cash. And the reason why you got into the business in the first place is far in the rearview mirror, mm-hmm. which is not to say you can't reverse course afterwards, but just save yourself the trouble and shoot for what you actually want. So kind of embrace the passion. I mean, you know, and go for whatever is going to make you happy within the passion that you're pursuing i suppose yeah that, that makes sense yeah yes but for but i mean i know i guess that is that is how it's, it's funny when you say it like that because I, I i don't want people to think that i mean this in some like esoteric way i just no. literally mean like if you love comedies because it, it doesn't have to be a high art thing if you love broad adam sandler comedies then try to make one <laughs> you know yeah that's what i'm saying 
Don't be like, well, I should be doing indie films at Sundance. If your actual passion is making broad Sandler comedies, then you should spend your time doing that. I give the same or similar advice to authors all the time. It's like when they always ask, like, you know, should I write to whatever the trend is? I'm like, fuck, God, no, don't write to whatever the trend is. But one thing, by the time you finish the book, that trend's gone. But the fact is, like, if you don't, if you're not writing about something that you care about, anyways, you know, then it's not gonna, it's not gonna hold the same, you know, quality regardless. Like. Mm-hmm. As soon as, um, you know, Twilight was a thing, like there was just this crazy influx to publishers with, you know, different versions of vampire stories. But it, it was a it was a one thing that occurred in a short space of time. And then the world moved on. Like you should never just go for something because it's popular, I suppose. I, I just watched a documentary about the cre- creation and journey of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how much you know about this, but uh, that was literally two friends trying to make each other laugh. What? Is that how it started? Eastman and Laird were struggling, aspiring comic book uh, authors who were like huge fans of Jack Kirby. And, you know, so they were just messing around and somebody apparently drew an image of a, a turtle with nunchucks. And then somebody wrote Ninja Turtle and they just kept going back and forth, making it more absurd, which has how they landed on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They added more characters to it. And it started off as like this really dark black and white comic book. I think they were from Jersey. And they, they, that's why it's so weird and original, because it was just two friends trying to make each other laugh. And then, of course, the comic caught fire. They got approached uh, by, for licensing deals. But like Anne Rice, they never gave up the creative control. They, they, took, they went with a lesser company initially, and they were mm-hmm. like, we just want to keep control of this. And then, and then the cartoon and the toy. Like, and now it's this cultural phenomenon. Man, that's crazy. I didn't know it. I, wait, so it started as a comic book? I didn't even know that it started as a comic book. So that's yeah, new information yeah. to me. I can I can email you the documentary I watched. It's pretty, yeah, it's I, I'd a, be so I'm totally curious. This this that's a weird like weird footnotes with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Even as it like went through like um the guy that who's the big producer, the one that was like did Two and a Half Men and Big Bang Theory, Chuck Lorre. Chuck Lorre, yeah. Like he wrote the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme tune. What really? Yeah, that was one of his first gigs. I did not know that. I, that's crazy. Well, shit, I'm, I'm going to fact check that, I, but I swear to God, that's a fact. I, I, I'm almost absolutely certain that that was one of his first gigs that he did. So here, here's two more random Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle facts you probably know. One is that the voice of Shredder is Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. What? I didn't know that. Is that yeah. true? Yeah, yeah. That's 100% true. James Avery, who played Uncle Phil on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, is the voice of Shredder. And another incredibly random one that I learned from this documentary is apparently... Ninja Turtles is a parody of Daredevil. And if you read the Daredevil origin story, how like Matt Murdock yes, has this ooze falling, like apparently yeah. like it takes, it, Turtles exist in this sort of parallel universe or the same universe as Daredevil where the ooze that affected Matt Murdock came through the sewer and got them. And then you'll, the, the enemy of Daredevil, I don't know how well you know Daredevil comic books, is the hand. And yep. the enemy of the Turtles is the foot clan. Like there's all oh, of these... It's like a pretty obvious parody of Daredevil. <laughs> and he was taught by Stick and they were taught by Splinter. Yeah. Think about it. <laughs> That's right? weird. It's super weird. And I never noticed it before this doc, but they, they were just saying how it's, and, and the entire thing is an homage to, to Jack Kirby. If you, if you watch the, like the panels of like the early panels of the comic books that you can tell they're super influenced. And, and Jack Kirby actually appears in one of the comics as well. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. I did not even... Man, but now you say it, like it does seem really stupidly obvious. Mm-hmm. Huh. I, I don't know either. 
and Uncle Phil. What? It's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, yeah, it is wild. Holy crap. All right. Well, this has been delightful, Amara. We'd love you more of your t- any more of your time, but um, I really, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and sitting down and chatting. Oh, my pleasure, man. As you can tell, I'm I'm happy to nerd out. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, man. All right, and that's the show, guys. I hope you enjoyed the rest of the conversation with Amari. I had an absolute blast speaking with him. He's such a fun guy. If you're interested in acting, you should totally check out the Vancouver Film School, where he is the department head for acting. Next week, we're on to a new guest, one of my favorite people in the entire world. Uh, Miranda Krogstad is going to be joining us. She is a spoken word poet out of Calgary, and she is such a fun, enigmatic personality. I can't wait for you guys to hear her. But until then, I'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you.